Well, I hate to uh, bring up a sore subject, but it is tax season. And for some of us, that causes some angst. Someone posted an imaginary conversation between the IRS and an individual that went like this. IRS, you owe us money. It's called taxes. Me, how much? IRS, you'll figure it out. Me, I just pay what I think is right? IRS, nope, we know exactly how much, but you have to guess. <laughs> Me, what if I'm wrong? IRS, fees, maybe jail, we'll see. Whether we like it or not, the IRS has authority, and for some of us, the IRS will tell us that we're getting a refund this year. For others, they will tell us we owe money. And the IRS has the authority to make such declarations. If the IRS tells us we're getting a refund, we believe and we're confident that there will be money arriving in our account soon. If the IRS tells us that we owe money, we know that we must, in fact, pay that, and there's really no getting out of it. Matters of authority bear significant weight on our lives. We are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Luke. And our sermon passage this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. At the heart of our passage is a matter of authority. And it's a matter of authority that is of eternal significance for us. I'm going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, and I encourage you to follow along. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. In our passage, we see the faith of the men, the compassion of Jesus, the objection of the Pharisees, and the confirmation we need. And at the center of the events of that day was a matter of authority. 
First, we see the faith of the men. On this day, Jesus was teaching in a house, and the house was packed with people who wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus and hear what he had to say. Luke tells us that the power of the Lord was with him to heal, building up some anticipation that something significant was about to happen. Of course, word was getting out about this unusual teacher who taught with authority and performed astonishing miracles. Among those who heard about Jesus was a group of men, including one who was paralyzed. When they heard the one who performed miracles was nearby, the men carried the one who was paralyzed on a stretcher to lay him before Jesus. But there was a problem. The house where Jesus was was so packed and full of people, there was no way to get in. They were packed in tight. They were surrounding the building. They were shoulder to shoulder. There was no way to create a path to get in to see Jesus. But while the crowd obstructed access to Jesus, on this day, the paralytic and his friends were not going to be denied. Why not? Well, you can imagine how difficult life was for this man who was paralyzed. You can imagine there was probably very few, probably no opportunities for him to work and to provide for himself and any other family members. Even doing household chores would be difficult. Some would be impossible. Even the basics of caring for him, his own self would be exceedingly challenging and difficult because of his condition. Life was hard. But this was his chance. They had heard about this man who performed astonishing miracles, healing people in ways that were immediate and astonishing and undeniable. And his friends were willing to help. They were willing to carry his stretcher all the way to Jesus, to lay them before him. And when the crowd obstructed their path, they did not give up. Because they believed that he had the power to heal, they were determined to get to Jesus. So they went to the roof. Roofs in ancient Palestine were typically flat and accessible by outside stone staircases. After climbing the stone staircase outside the house, they dug through the roof, making an opening large enough to lower their friend down to Jesus. I think we should see that to help their friend, they were willing to go the extra mile and take a risk. They were willing to risk embarrassment. What if this was not well received by the people who were there that day? They were willing to re, re, uh, risk rejection. What if going through all that, Jesus said, what are you doing? You can't just pull people's roofs apart. This is not okay. They took a risk. They risked making people angry, particularly the people who own the house. They were willing to take risks. They were willing to go the extra mile. And they were willing to do this to help their friend. When the man was lowered in front of Jesus, we read that Jesus saw their faith. Isn't that interesting? 
Isn't that an interesting phrase? He saw their faith. Doesn't it seem like faith is a hard thing to see? Did Jesus have special x-ray vision whereby he could see something that was invisible to everyone else? I don't think so. He saw their faith in their actions. Clearly, they believed that Jesus could heal their friend. Their faith, their belief was demonstrated in how far they were willing to go, what they were willing to do in order to get this man in front of Jesus. He could see their faith in their actions. Their faith was on display. And their faith caused them to carry their friend to Jesus, to find a way around the crowd, to take him upstairs, to pull apart a roof, to lower him down. Don't we all want friends like that? Don't we want friends who are willing to go the extra mile for us? Who are willing to take risks? Who are willing to inconvenience themselves? Who are willing to give up their time and their their energy, their resources, their reputations to help us in, in our times of need? Of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we that kind of friend? Are we the kind of friend who is willing to care for others, give up our time and, and our energy and our, our money and our resources, willing to take risks, help our friends in times of need? In Galatians 6.2, we read, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think that the friends here provide a picture of this bearing the burden of their friend by caring for him, literally carrying him to Jesus, taking him upstairs, removing the roof, lowering him down. This is a picture of how we are called to love one another as followers of Christ. We are called to bear one another's burdens. Their faith The faith of these friends and their willingness to help provide a commendable example for us. Next, we see the compassion of Jesus. When the man was lowered in front of him, Jesus was not annoyed by the interruption. He was not angry about the hole they made in the roof. And he was not dismissive, as if this man was less important than this large crowd that had gathered to hear him. No, he gave the man his undivided attention. He looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven you. Don't you wonder what the man was thinking when Jesus said that? I sure do. What was he thinking when Jesus looked at him clearly saw why he was being lowered in front of him and said, your sins are forgiven you. Maybe the man was relieved. Maybe he believed that his condition was a result of his sin. And so maybe it was a relief. Maybe it was life-giving to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you. But I've got to believe there was part of him who was, that was like, you know why I'm here. 
You know why I've come. He came to be healed. Clearly, Jesus could see that. Clearly, Jesus understood. Jesus knew why he came. Yet he did not address his physical condition first, but rather his spiritual condition. Wouldn't it have been more compassionate if Jesus had addressed his physical condition first? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think what Jesus did helps us see what is difficult for us to see. He helps us to understand our greatest problem and our greatest need. What was the man's biggest problem? If you would have asked him, if you would have asked the crowd that day who were watching, there were probably many who would say, well, his biggest problem is the fact that he's paralyzed. That's clearly his biggest problem. That's what makes his life so hard. But consider this. If Jesus healed the man of his paralysis but did not forgive his sins, then the healing he experienced would be short-lived. Maybe he would live another 50 years and would be grateful that he was healed. But then, like everyone else, he would die. Death would eventually come. And what if his sins were not forgiven? What then would become of him when he died? Would he care about his healing after he died if his sins were not forgiven? His physical problem kept him from walking. His sin problem kept him from God. Sin separates us from God, the one who made us, the one who made us to know, enjoy, and glorify him. Sin removes us from the realm of life with God and places us in the realm of death apart from God. God is the righteous judge of all the earth, and our sin brings us under his just condemnation. Our sin causes enmity with God, the one who made us, and the one who will judge us. We cannot fix our sin problem, but we desperately need our sins to be forgiven. Friend, you may be tempted to think that some other problem is your biggest problem, something other than your sin problem. Perhaps it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe you've experienced broken relationships. Maybe you have a terrible boss at work. These are difficult trials that weigh on us and take a toll on us. And you might have a specific problem in mind that if it were resolved or just went away, then things would be okay and life would be good. But Jesus reminds us that though we may have many problems in this life, our biggest problem is our sin problem. 
Without the forgiveness of sins, we cannot have peace with God. Without the forgiveness of our sins, we are destined for an eternity in hell, separated from God. Do you see how big of a problem this is? Do you know that this is your biggest problem? Do you know that your greatest need is a remedy for this problem? We desperately need peace with God. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, he was removing the barrier that prevented the man from experiencing life. He was removing the barrier that kept him out of the kingdom of God. He was graciously addressing the man's biggest problem by far. As hard as it was for him to live with paralysis, and it was hard. There's no minimizing that or dismissing that. His biggest problem was his sin problem. And though Jesus did not immediately give the man what he wanted, he gave him what he most needed. Sometimes we go to Jesus and don't get the outcome that we want. But we can trust that he is kind and compassionate and will always give us what we most need. In our passage, we see the compassion of Jesus. Next, we see the objection of the Pharisees. Luke makes a point of telling us that at the beginning of the story, that the audience that day included Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism who were committed to a strict interpretation and application of the law of Moses, which God had given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. They were zealous for the people, for the Jewish people, to obey the law. And most likely, they had come that day not to learn, but to investigate. They were there to investigate. Who was this man? Who was this teacher? Who was this miracle worker that they had heard about? Is he going to lead the people away from faithfulness to the law? When Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. The alarm bells went off for the Pharisees. Whoa. Whoa, wait a minute. What did he just say? Who does he think he is? They took exception to what Jesus said, and this was no small matter. This was not a difference about how we might interpret this word or how we might specifically apply this law. No, this was not a small matter. This was blasphemy. Who is this who blasphemes? Who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? To blaspheme was to slander the, the name, the character, the nature of God. To defame him. 
and claiming some kind of equality with God was a way that a person could defame God. The Pharisees rightly understood that when Jesus looked at the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven you, he was making an extraordinary claim. He was saying, all your sins are ultimately and finally a transgression against me. And therefore, all your sins are mine to forgive. He was not saying, hey, you wronged me in this way and I forgive you for this thing that you did. No, he said, your sins in total. All your sins are forgiven. And therefore, he was claiming the authority to forgive all his sins. The scribes were right in saying that only God can forgive the totality of someone's sins. Therefore, they understood that he was claiming equality with God. Jesus was unequivocally making a claim to have authority that belonged to God. The problem was the Pharisees failed to see who was right in front of them. They did not have the eyes to see Jesus for who he is. Finally, we see the confirmation we need. Jesus knew the religious leaders and teachers were questioning him. He knew they took exception to his claim to have the authority to forgive the man's sins. So he addressed their challenge head on. And one of the things we see in his response is that he referred to himself as the son of man. Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. Why did he use this title to describe himself? There's certainly some confusion regarding this. But Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. Why did he do so? In the Old Testament, the phrase son of man is frequently used as a synonym for man. In other words, son of man often refers to a human being. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Or Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, we read, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So there is a sense in which this phrase, son of man, refers to a human being. But we also see another use of this phrase in the book of Daniel that Jesus had in mind when he used the title for himself. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel had a vision of the heavenly court of God. 
And to the Ancient of Days came one like a son of man, and he was given dominion and the authority to judge the world, and he was worthy of the, the worship of the entire world. The world was to serve him. He would exercise dominion and authority over an everlasting kingdom. R.C. Sproul says this was actually a very highly exalted title that Jesus was using in reference to himself. So when we hear son of man in reference to Jesus, we should think of both his humanity and his deity. He is fully God and fully man. He is the divine son of man. And as the divine Son of man, when he claimed to be the son of man, he was making a claim to divine authority. As the divine son of man, he had the authority to forgive sins. But he did not need to prove that to the Pharisees. He did not need to prove that to anyone else in the house that day. He did not need to prove that to anyone, including us. Yet he did so for our sake. When Jesus' authority was called into question, he created a scenario whereby he put his reputation on the line. In verse 23, he said, Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? How would you answer that question? Think for a moment. How would you answer that question? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? I mean, there's a couple different ways we can go with that. But theologian Tom Schreiner writes, the answer is that both are equally difficult to do. Both are divine activities. We read in Psalm 103.3 that the Lord forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Both healing and forgiveness are the prerogative of God alone. God can delegate such authority to human beings, but ultimately God heals and God forgives. Both are impossible for man apart from God. No one, no man, and him or herself has the authority to forgive sins. No man or woman in him or herself has the authority to command someone to be healed and they will be healed. So what was Jesus doing when he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? He was describing two things that only God can do, but only one of them was verifiable or falsifiable from a human perspective. He could say, your sins are forgiven you, but who in the audience could know if that man's sins were forgiven? Who could observe? Who could know? Who could prove it's true or demonstrate that it was not true? Well, no one. So, to prove that he did have the authority to forgive the man's sins, he did something that was also impossible for man, but verifiable. He said to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And instantly, he was healed. Instantly, 
he jumped to his feet. Instantly, he picked up his mat that he was carried on, and he went home. They could see that he had the authority to do this thing. They could see with their eyes. They could verify, whoa, he does have the authority to do this. To prove that he had the authority to forgive the man's sins, he did something that was verifiable. The fact that he could do the thing that only God can do, that can be verified, proved that he, could, he had the authority to do the thing that only God can do, which can't be verified. In other words, Jesus was graciously demonstrating that he has the authority to forgive sins. Do you see that the physical healing pointed to the greater thing? That you may know. Why did he heal him? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He made this wonderful, glorious declaration, your sins are forgiven. Well, who are you to say that? Do you have the authority to make that declaration? Jesus said, let me show you that I do. The healing of the man was not the greatest thing that happened that day. It pointed to the greater thing. We get caught up in the miracles, the healings. Wow, just like the crowd that day. They went home praising God for what they saw. You won't believe what we saw. This guy was paralyzed and he got up and jumped home. We're amazed by that. But Jesus is saying, I'm doing this so you can see the greater thing. That I have the authority to forgive your sins. When we think about the question, which is easier to say, it is worth considering which was harder to do. What do I mean? Well, we see in the Old Testament that whenever the people of Israel approached God for the forgiveness of their sins, blood was shed. A sacrifice was required. Listen to what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 9.22, which says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the sacrificial system under the old covenant was not sufficient in and of itself. Listen to what the author of Hebrews said a few verses later in Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All the sacrifices made by the people of Israel were never sufficient in and of themselves to do away with sins, but they were meant to point to a better sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Jesus knew for that man's sins to be truly forgiven, there would be a cost. Blood would need to be shed, and a perfect sacrifice would need to be made. Jesus knew he was the sacrifice. When Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven, when he told him, your sins are forgiven, he was telling him, I will shed my blood for you. In Matthew 26, the night before he died on the cross, Jesus took a cup filled with wine and handed it to his disciples. And in verse 28, he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. His blood was shed so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. 
Jesus confirmed in the house that day that he had the authority to forgive all our sins. And the day he died on the cross, he confirmed that he was willing to do what was necessary to forgive all our sins. The man responded by glorifying God. The crowd was amazed by what they saw. The crowd that day could see with their eyes the miracle that Jesus performed. But not everyone that day had the eyes to see who Jesus was and is. Not everyone had the eyes to see that Jesus is God and has the authority to forgive all our sins. Brothers and sisters, we need the Lord to help us see and believe things that we cannot observe and confirm with our eyes. We need to live by faith. We need faith to believe that our sin problem is our biggest problem. We have many problems in our lives that press on us and weigh heavily on us. Oftentimes, those problems seem bigger to us than our sin problem. Sometimes we think if this problem would just go away, then all would be good. We need faith to see that our sin problem is our biggest problem. We need faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has the authority to forgive all our sins. We don't have the benefit of seeing what the people saw that day. Yet he calls us to fully trust him in all things. In John 20, 29, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He calls us to believe in him without having seen the things that those who were with him while he was on earth were able to see. This is what he calls us to. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is what he calls you to. He calls on you to understand that your biggest problem is your sin problem. It may not seem that way to you. It may not seem like it's a big deal. But your sin problem is your biggest problem. But God in his grace and in his mercy has provided a way for you to be forgiven of all your sins and be reconciled to God. And he did so by sending Jesus Christ into the world as the savior of the world. Jesus lived a life without sin perfectly obeying God and fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law. And though he lived a life without sin, he went to the cross. And Jesus died on the cross willingly, taking the punishment we deserve in our place. His blood was shed so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died as a substitute in our place, he was buried, but on the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering death. And for 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people, proving 
that he is alive. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to render a final judgment. And our only hope at the final judgment is Jesus. Our only hope is in him. The good news is that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved, will be forgiven of all their sins, reconciled to God, and will be welcomed into his glorious kingdom for all eternity. Whatever problems you have in this life will go away. We need faith to believe. We need faith to rest assured that he does forgive all our sins. Jesus did not suffer and die to forgive some of your sins, most of your sins, or all your sins except the really bad ones. He is a mighty and compassionate Savior, and when you go to him for the forgiveness of your sins, you receive the forgiveness for all your sins. We need faith to believe that if he has taken care of our biggest problem, we can trust him with the rest of our problems. Brothers and sisters, the fact that Jesus forgives all our sins means that though our other problems are painful, they will not last. We may not get the instant, immediate relief or answer that we want as the man did that day. But we can trust that Jesus will give us what we need most. And we can trust that everything else in this life, every other problem, will ultimately and finally go away. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he does give us what we need. And because he has forgiven us all our sins, we can be certain that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Your word is good and your word is good for us. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who has the authority to forgive all our sins. We pray that you will give us eyes to see. Give us the faith that we need to believe these things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.